I think the writing of poetry promotes in us, and I think probably in children too, a lot more thoughtfulness about what words are we using. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal here is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So happy April to you, Andrew. Thank you. April is always a lovely month. It is, except for tax day. But we won't talk about that. Yeah, and then there's showers and birthdays and (laughs) all sorts of problems. (laughs) Actually, it's a horrible month. (laughs) Well, sometimes when we do podcasts, we look at the monthly calendar, meaning there's national monthly calendars. Like in January, we did a podcast on... Burnout on SADS Day for Seasonal Affective Disorder Syndrome Because Day. it's Burnout National Burnout Month? Because January is National Burnout <laughs> Month, or how to, how to avoid burnout. I see. So for April, here's a few choices that we can talk about. It's English Language Month, which I think ties in a little bit to what we're actually talking about today. Perhaps. It's Stress Awareness Month. <laughs> wow, probably that's related, critical. Probably related to taxes. But I think <laughs> it's also somewhat related to perhaps what we're talking about today. National Autism Awareness Month. National Fresh Celery Month. You have got to be kidding. <laughs> it's a thing. <laughs> Which again, ties in with our But theme. who decides these things? I don't know. Celery Month. And I have... Two more to mention, National Humor Month, which we're looking forward to a podcast on that in the future. And our theme for this week's podcast is National Poetry Month. So this is National Poetry Month. So National Poetry Month and National Humor Month are the same month? They are. Who would have thunk it? (laughs) So I know that there's so many things that we have talked about in the past related to poetry, I know that this is something that's near and dear to your heart, so I thought we could spend some time talking about why we should be teaching poetry and how to learn poetry, thinking of our listen, speak, read, write, think theme of IEW. Sure, sure. Well, I grew up with poetry in my life. As some people have heard the story, we spent a lot of time on our boat when I was a child over at Catalina Island off the coast of Southern California. And that was in the days before there were such things as anything, really, (laughs) wireless, whatever. Was that before television? (laughs) There was television, but not one on our boat. Okay. (laughs) And so uh, we we didn't have any electronic uh, anything while we were over there. So one had to amuse oneself or be entertained together as a family. And in the daytime, you could swim and 
spearfish and build sandcastles and climb and hike and jump off rocks. And But at night, there's nothing to do except talk, <laughs> play cards, read. One of the big things was poetry. My father would always read poems to us. My sister and I, was just two of us, as we were laying in our, our bunks in the forward section of the boat before we'd go to sleep. And that is one of the fondest memories of my childhood. Mm. My dad also read poetry to us, but mostly he grabbed Mother Goose. And either we he read it or we sang songs about Mother Goose. It just was a big part of my childhood as well. I still have that book. The book Favorite of... Favorite Poems Old and New, edited by Helen Ferris. It, it's the book I grew up with. And nice. my sister found one. We, we I think between the three of us, we bought two or three on mm-hmm. on eBay or Amazon so that we could have that particular book as we grew up. And mm-hmm. Did you read those poems to your children? Most of them, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. It was a key spot on the bookshelf, and <laughs> I'll have to go find the thing now so I can read it to my grandchildren. Exactly. So talk about the benefits of listening to poetry. Well, of course, there's just the simple enjoyment factor. You know, the rhythm of the language, the rhyme schemes, they tickle the ear, they bring a smile to one's heart. And so just for sheer pleasantry, poetry beats a whole lot of other things. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm sure most people would rather hear a good poem than the headlines of the newspaper Mm. of the day. (laughs) Of course, many people don't want to hear any news at all (laughs) these days. But there's that just beauty. And then, of course, there's the incredible benefits that you get from expanding your vocabulary. We've talked about that before many times, how when you hear the words being used, that moves it into your own database of language. It furnishes your mind And then with that vocabulary, you can bring it out in various forms, in your spoken communication, your written communication. I remember one of the poems I heard and then memorized at a very young age goes like this. Scintillate, scintillate, globule vivific. Fain would I ponder thy nature specific. Loftily poised in ether capacious. Strongly resembling a gem carbonaceous. So you, you can imagine a little 11 year old kid memorizing this poem. Most of the words I did not know, but having memorized it, then suddenly, you know, I have words like fain, right? And ether, <laughs> and capacious, and scintillate, and globule. <laughs> Do you use those words much now today? Well, I don't know there's a whole lot of opportunity, but certainly they would be available to Mm -hmm. me if I had to describe a twinkling star in the sky. (laughs) So vocabulary. And then, of course, there's the richness of the figures of speech. Mm. We talk in our program about some of those with the decorations Mm -hmm. and the triples. We have the schemes, things that appeal to the senses, such as alliteration, assonance, the rhyme scheme, the rhythm scheme, the three short staccato sentences, those 
those sound nice. And so when you steep yourself in poetry, mm-hmm. then you're more likely to come up with some of those nice schemes in your writing. Mm-hmm. And then perhaps even more significant would be the tropes. The tropes are those literary devices or figures of speech that appeal to the imagination. Mm. So the probably the mother of all tropes metaphor, her younger sister simile, when you read poems that have those, the Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold, mm-hmm. his cohorts gleaming in purple and gold. And so it, the poetry is kind of the perfect combination of the schemes and tropes with elements of drama or humor or emotional connection. So poetry is very deep. In fact, if you look at the literature of the world, all the ancient stuff was poetry. Mm -hmm. They couldn't write it down, so they had to memorize it. Mm -hmm. And making it memorable with those schemes and tropes, with the rhyme patterns that don't necessarily carry over into the modern language go back all the way to you know Gilgamesh and Homer those were Beowulf you know those were things that were recited mm-hmm. in the around the campfires of the great halls generation after generation after generation and they furnished the minds of all of the young people and and reinforced in the older people and that became kind of the core literacy so i i think if you had to say what's the core of literacy for humanity, you'd probably go back to the poetry. Hmm. Certainly, a lot of the Old Testament was written in poetic form so that it would be easier to remember and recall and transmit. And we have this interesting expression. I, I think it may come from Shakespeare, though I'm not entirely sure. You've probably heard it. We'd say something like, well, it has no rhyme or reason. Right. No rhyme or reason. Why would we put those things together? Two ways we can detect truth and beauty. It has the beauty of the rhyme, or it has the truth of the logic, the reason. Mm. And of course, if it has both rhyme and reason, then it reaches kind of a pinnacle of soul-enriching language. Right. So the poem that you just recited, The Purple and Gold... I'm not as literate about poetry. Where is that from? Yes, so that poem, The Destruction of Sennacherib, or I've heard it pronounced different ways. Mm -hmm. It's a a biblical event that he commemorated in a poem, George Gordon, Mm -hmm. or Lord Byron, I believe. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it's one of the great classic poems. And it has boy appeal, too. Mm -hmm. It's it's a battle scene. It's it's violent. There's death and destruction. We probably cannot safely say there were no animals harmed in the <laughs> envisioning of this poem, at least the imaginary ones. Exactly. So we listen to poetry. So what is the value of learning it well enough to be able to recite it? Well, that's a multi-layered question, of mm-hmm. course. The first would be the joy of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think anyone who's memorized a poem and has recited it for anyone, has a bit of kind of a little flutter of joy that happens when we do that. Mm -hmm. That's just a a natural human response. And then, of course, if we can recite it for an appreciative audience, then that's even better. Mm -hmm. Maybe 
We may get a little nervous if we have to recite it in a formal setting, but that's okay too. We get over that. But probably more than that in terms of the linguistic development side is it moves the word from your kind of passive vocabulary to your active vocabulary. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned with the poem Sinolate, Sinolate, Gobule, Vivific, you could hear that poem any number of times, and perhaps you would recognize those words. But once you can recite that poem, particularly from memory, easily, fluently, effortlessly, all those words have moved from your passive vocabulary to your active vocabulary, giving you then a greater vocabulary for whatever you want to do. Mm -hmm. So I would say most everyone agrees that having a larger vocabulary is an advantage, however you want to think about that, Mm -hmm. whether you say statistics show that people with a larger vocabulary make more money than those who don't, or SAT scores indicate that, or you might even simplify it and say people with more words at their disposal can think more thoughts. They can think more sophisticated thoughts. Mm -hmm. They have nuances of thought that aren't possible. One thing I've mentioned before, but it's so fascinating to me, is George Orwell's book, 1984, which truly was a world without poetry. But what was interesting to me is he talked about how the, you know, the, the government, the totalitarian control of everything was intentionally trying to shrink the vocabulary mm. so that people would have fewer and fewer words that they could use. And replacing words like excellent with plus good or putting in double plus ungood, which would eliminate evil, and thereby the goal being that you could eliminate thought crime. Mm. You could control people's thinking by shrinking their vocabulary. I would argue that advertisers often seem to be trying to do this today as well. If we can shrink the way you think about you know, food or cars or clothes or style or whatever, you're, you're more controllable. So just to look at it from a, a human point of view, the larger the vocabulary, the more expansive thought, the more expansive perceptions you can have. We've talked a little bit about how kids will write a book report. This is a very interesting book, and all the characters are very interesting, and it was really interesting what happened, and you should read this interesting book. Why? Why is that what they write? Because that's the only word they have. Right. So when we furnish that mind with the greater variety of words and expressions and ways to say things, we actually expand the capacity for thought. Mm -hmm. I think poetry, by its nature, does that better than almost any other form of education that you could come up with. Hmm. So how different then, just moving on to our next language art, listening, speaking, reading, how different is speaking poetry and reading poetry? Well, language is primarily, first and foremost, historically and ontologically, a auditory thing, Hmm. right? It's Mm -hmm. first auditory and verbal, and only secondary or peripherally or downline in civilization, or with older people, does it become a a visual written thing. So 
when we think about the benefit of having poetry written down, then we're looking at the preservation of the mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. And not just generationally, but even within one's own thinking. So I think you're aware that recently I was visiting Dr. Webster yes. in Vancouver. He ordered me up there <laughs> in his cute 90-year-old way. He summoned me to write poetry for the weekend. Mm-hmm. And so I had to sit and write many poems. Mm-hmm. He's got all these different little structures and models and patterns and checklists, mm-hmm. which would be his thing Yes, of course. for writing poems. What was interesting for me was writing the poem and then being able to read it and then being able to change something Mm. and reading it again and being able to change it and this continuous process of refinement. That, I think, is one of the benefits that we get from writing poetry Mm -hmm. is this feeling like, wow, you can always tweak it. You can always make it a little better. You can find a better word. You can add a syllable here and drop a syllable there. You can look at the rhyme scheme and you can get closer. Or, you know, the nuance of it is so vital that it is much different than writing, say, you know, a report or an article or an essay where, okay, let's communicate the information. Okay, we basically did that. Let's move on. We're busy. Whereas the poetry kind of demands your full attention and grips you, and you you can't even let go of it. It it won't let you go. Hmm. And so that's kind of an interesting experience in writing the poetry. You think, okay, what do I want to say? And you you say it to yourself, and then you hear what you said. And then you remember what you heard yourself say, and then you try to write down. If you forget what you heard yourself say to yourself, you've got to go reconstruct it all from the very beginning again. But once you've got it written down, that frees up a big chunk of your mind to then more objectively look at it and remember, re-bring to mind what you wrote in a different way than the first time, second, first or second time you thought of it. So... I think the writing of poetry promotes in us, and I think probably in children too, a lot more thoughtfulness about what words are we using. Mm -hmm. And you can't do the writing without the reading. They just are so organically connected. So Dr. Webster forced you to write poetry. Can I force you to read some of the poetry that Dr. Webster forced you to write? Yes, more or less. <laughs> he's he's kind of on a poetry binge, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, he's always loved poetry. Mm-hmm. In fact, that was one of the things that we all learned with Mrs. Ingham and Shirley and Burton at the Blended Soundsight program was right. Mrs. Ingham's whole talk on poetry, the great integrator. Yes, and we have that available on our website. It, that is an awesome talk. Mm-hmm. In fact, if there were one little piece of Mrs. Ingham that we could pull out of the the great, great history and heritage mm-hmm. that she left, I think that would be the talk right? to represent her spirit and the essence of what Blended Soundsight was, you know, right. at its core, which was joy and 
building language easily, empowering children. Yep, yep. And, you know, when we developed our materials for our schools division for the primary levels, we used a lot of poetry. And we have a lot of poetry also in PAL for our homeschooling audience. And that poetry is probably what distinguishes us from any other phonics program. Not many phonics programs learn to read or learn to write at a very young age is integrating poetry to the level that we are. Yeah, I think that's true. I haven't seen anything that does. And I've never met a child who doesn't naturally like poetry and will naturally memorize Mm -hmm. more easily. One of the things Webster was playing with integrating stylistic techniques. Hmm. So there are certain things that most everyone learns when they start to analyze poetry, things like the different feet. So uh, a lot of people have heard of iambic pentameter because Shakespeare wrote so much of what he wrote in iambic pentameter. Hmm. And an iamb, I-A-M-B, am is a short and then a stressed accent. So, di-da, 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 di-da. Then there's other types of feet. There's trochet, dactyl, and anapest. And the one that he was trying to get me to work with was anapest, which is two unstressed and one stressed. So, di-ti-ta, di-ti-ta, di-ti-ta. Okay. And then there's the meter or the number of feet per line. So diameter would be two feet per line. Trimeter would be three or Hmm. trimeter, some people say. Pentameter would be five, right? So if you had five accented syllables in a line, that would be a pentameter. And if those syllables tended to be the iam, dita, then you'd have iambic pentameter. Okay. So he was trying to get me to write in anapestic pentameter, okay. <laughs> which would be five stressed syllables, two unstressed and one stressed times five. So a total of 15 syllables. In a line. In a line. Okay. More or less. So that's one aspect. Then you also look at rhyme schemes. So there's rhyme schemes such as a, a limerick. There was a young lady named Bright who traveled much faster than light. She left one day in her u- relative way and returned the previous night. So that would be a A-A-B-B-A rhyme scheme. Mm-hmm. And you'll often find A-B-A-B or A-A-B-B. And so, you know, these different rhyme schemes that poets. So furthermore, he wanted me to write a sonnet. Okay. <laughs> which has to have three quatrains, so three stanzas of four lines each, and then a couplet, a two-line ending that kind of embraces the whole. Probably one of the most famous sonnets is, Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer Rose? Mm. Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer Rose? It has the I am pentameter, Okay, and it continues on. I was assigned here (laughs) to write a sonnet in anapestic pentameter with one of his literary figures, one of the decorations or triples that he demands in each stanza. And 
I didn't know what to write about, but we ended up having a conversation about the problem in Vancouver of wild animals now inhabiting, you know, right downtown in the city, right? I mean, he lives in the one of the oldest parts of the city that's been city forever, and it's just mm -hmm. all city. But evidently, there's uh, raccoons and skunks and groundhogs and chipmunks and... And the problem is, is that you're not supposed to capture or catch or kill these things because all Vancouverites have such a, you know, love for the, the wild animals in the city. So now they have to have a department of urban wildlife that helps to, I don't know, catch and transport these raccoons mm -hmm. to some safe space. I'm not sure. And I just thought this violates my Oklahoma sensibilities, <laughs> okay. right? It violates my antipathy toward certain predators and pest-like creatures. Right. And I thought, well, to challenge this Vancouver city tree-hugging, animal-loving mentality... I'm going to write a nice violent poem, <laughs> right? And so I did. Now, Webster, of course, I don't know how he feels about these particular little animals. I know he's got friends who would be appalled <laughs> if you were to actually kill one. But this is entitled, What to Do with Foxes, a Sonnet. So in Tulsa, where we live right now, we had at one time about 12 chickens. And now we're down to three. Oh, no. And they didn't die of illness. Right. And they didn't die of becoming dinner. Hmm. So here's a little view. <laughs> With their clucks and their strutting the yard, a dozen happy hens, roaming free, scratching worms, safe, protected by the sturdy fence. Mother loves them, gives them grain, like the Pied Piper they follow her, every night in the coop, perching close, cooing low and secure. In the shadows, behind and between, there he lurks out of place, denizen of field, farm, and forest, stranded in city space, with instinct ever forcing his movement, hunger, bloodlust, slyly and silently midday in sunshine attack he must. A vulpine marauder, he quickly sprints, a leap and fatal bite, sharp canines, crushing pullet heads, ripped from bodies, hens in flight. Now five dead, with their corpses and feathers all scattered about. Now without feast he must flee, the broom-wielding woman's crazed shout. Animal-loving town-dwellers may be tree or fox-huggers, but we who keep chickens know what to do. Just shoot the buggers. <laughs> so did Dr. Webster like your poem? Yes, he did. And I, I still probably have to have some revisions. He's expecting me now to send him the typed up copies. Of course. So he can give me further suggestions on improvement. So there's many things that I like about this story. One is Dr. Webster is still as hard on you today as he was 30 years ago when you first started learning from him. Ruthless. <laughs> Ruthless. And your inability to immediately come up with something to write about. 
Oh, yes. Well, my first poem was miserable. <laughs> I tried to write about mermaids, and I have no experience of mermaids. So, you know, I followed the advice that writers always give younger writers, which is write about something you know. Right. Draw from your experience. Right. Find the images or pictures or places that you can reimagine easily. Right. And this particular event, it wasn't actually my wife who ran out with a broom. My oldest daughter, Genevieve, who was at our house at the time, who ran out with her son's Nerf sword <laughs> to try and vanquish the marauding, murdering <laughs> fox. But, you know, he also said, well, you don't have to be exact. A poem can be inspired mm -hmm. by something. I did think, okay, that was a very good exercise for me. He would not, he would not let us go to dinner until I got this sonnet <laughs> finished. So he's 90 years old. And he said he gets up now every morning and spends an hour or two working on a poem. Wow. And he'll just write and rewrite and rewrite it and rewrite it until he feels like he's just got it the way he wants it. And then a few days later, he'll read it again and change it some more. Mm -hmm. And would that we all right. could be that mentally sharp and motivated to exercise our minds in the nonagenarians, is that it? <laughs> Not octogenarian. Octo's eight, so right. I think if you're 90-something, it must be nonagenarian, right, something right. like that. So. so although we don't plan to publish Dr. Webster's poems or his checklists, we do have a couple resources for our listeners if they are interested in either learning to listen to or speak poetry. That's our Linguistic Development Through Poetry Memorization course, which we redid a couple of years ago, and it's just had wonderful results. It's spectacular. Yes. And then, of course, our other course that we carry, The Grammar of Poetry. Yes. It's very good, and that's all about reading with a greater understanding of what you're reading. You can easily learn about am and Anapest and Dactyl and Trochet. It's also about writing poetry and imitating mm -hmm. different schemes and including tropes and all that. It's a very good course. So, yes, I would encourage everyone, if you haven't uh, delved into poetry much, well, you said this is National Poetry right. Month. So if there's one time of year, what's the poem, April showers bring? Mayflowers. Mayflowers. See, it's poetic right there. It's poetic right there. If you have someone interested in learning English, read and speak poetry. If you want to have a stress-free month, read and speak poetry. And write poetry. And if you have autistic children, I imagine that listening to poetry will also help them. When memorizing it. Absolutely. Sure. And then, of course, please tell us the National Fresh Celery Month, why that's important. Because of the poem by Ogden Nash. Which is? Celery raw develops the jaw, but celery stewed is more quietly chewed. So we've tied all the themes together <laughs> in one podcast. In one podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Poudois and the team at IEW, 
I thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking. 